Welcome to Keepers of the Word. We're an esoteric study group of Freemasons. Our purpose is to share knowledge of mystery schools and debunk any misconceptions about Freemasonry. You're here with Mike and Ron. How's it going, guys? And we're here with author Jamie Paul Lamb, author of Myth, Magic, and Masonry. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So, my first question, I'll go ahead and get it started, is um, what was your motivation to write the book, Myth, Magic, and Masonry? You know what happened was, uh, after I was raised about 10 years ago, I started to uh, unpack what, um, what had gone on during the degrees, you know, and I, I was reading a lot of different sources and trying to get my head around some of the less than superficial interpretations of our work, you know, our symbolism and our allegory and our ritual, you know, and I really wanted to kind of, because I understood that, yeah, there's this kind of moral and ethical interpretation, right? And it's given to us very plainly, like right in the ritual, you know, rectitude of conduct and the working tools and, you know, um, up, uprightness and circumscribing your passions and staying within due bounds, etc. All of the moral and ethical interpretations are right there, you know, um, at the surface and, and given clearly to us. But it seemed to me that there was, there was quite a bit more that was um, kind of just beneath the surface and then very far beneath the surface, you know, so it, it seemed like an excavation kind of job. So what caused me to write the book was, over the course of those years, I had, because um, the, cause the book, Myth, Magic, and Masonry is really, it kind of comes from four essays that I wrote individually, you know, and then I expanded on them, and then I tied them all together with the Anna Lucas. So if you'll notice, my, my thesis in that book, the one, the one kind of thread that winds through everything, and hence, that's why the cover has... Um, has the bull with the zodiacal wheel on it is because if you wind back to 4000 BCE, you know, that's my perspective. That's my interpretive vantage point throughout the entire thing, you know? Anyway, so that's what tied those four individual pieces together. The first one being on ceremonial magic, the second one being on solar and astrological symbolism. Uh, the third one, being on um, mythology, classical mythology, and then the fourth one being on mystery traditions, but specifically Mithraism as the exemplar of the mysteries. So awesome. that's what kind of got me writing was trying to understand those deeper levels, you know, for myself. Right. So, you know, going, going back to those three points, those points are kind of considered occult, right? So right. In, in the craft or in masonry, why do you feel that that word is looked at like an I think because, uh, I'm turning up my volume a bit. I think because, um, you know, some of it I think is just an etymological thing. It's got the word cult in it, C-U-L-T, you know? And I think people, unless you're really interested in esoterica or you read about the Western esoteric tradition and things like that, I mean, you might hear a cult. And since the eight, like I grew up, I did my high school years in the eighties. Right. And I imagine some of you guys did as well. So um, you remember how there was the big scare, like, you know, satanic rock and roll music and stuff like that. Satanic panic, satanic panic, the satanic panic. Right. Yeah. So all that sort of, puritanical Nancy Reaganisms about the whole thing and the PR, PRMC and Tipper Gore and all that that was happening around that time. I think that that just touched the popular consciousness in a lot of ways to where if you see a cult or if you see even a Baphomet, which I don't think is anything Luciferian or satanic about that, right? Um, all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's immediately, you know, you're tied in with Satanism and, and a, a cult, not a cult, you know? So I just think there's some, you know, uh, what do you call it when a word sound, uh, 
a word sounds like another word and it kind of gives you that impression. I forget. There's a, there's a word for that, but, uh, I think alliteration. Yeah. You, I think. you could, you conflate. Yeah. Yeah. A little, you might be right. Alliteration. Yeah. I think so. In, in our degrees, in our degrees. So, so you touched on those, those four lenses that you write about in your book. Can you give us, like a little example of each one of those four different lenses and the relationship to masonry. Yeah. So in the, the first section is ceremonial magic and in the ceremonial magic section, one of the things I get into, um, probably not my most powerful argument in that section, but one of the things I get into is the uh, volume of sacred law as a grimoire, you know, and how we use invocations and uh, we use, um, you know, like the King James Bible is used in our ritual. In the English speaking lodges, we use that, right? So if you're taking uh, biblical passages and creating extra biblical narratives, like our Hiramic legend, you know, um, and you're using those um, in a magical way, you know, you're using those in an initiatory way and you're using those in a way that, that uh, uses your imagination in conjunction with the expression of your will or yourself, you know, um, then I view that, you know, and we, we do a, straight up invocation before we undertake any of the work. So there are, there are several, you know, I'm just picking two. There, there are dozens of them that I picked out in that section. But uh, so for ceremonial magic, those would be a couple of things that I isolated and put in their classically magical context, you know? Um, and then the next section was solar and astrological symbolism. Again, you could take, uh, and in that, in that section, I really built off of a lot of uh, Robert Hewitt Brown stuff. That's like the starting point for the astrotheological perspective in masonry. You guys ever read Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy? No, I haven't. No. That's a tremendous book. So that's in 1882, Robert Hewitt Brown wrote Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy. And, um, it was in that that he made the case for uh, the, his biggie was making the case for um, his big thesis was uh, interpreting the Hiramic legend as a uh, an annual solar circuit. So, yeah, and he does a very compelling job of that. So in that section, I recap some of the big Robert Brown stuff some of the Pike stuff where he messed around with astrotheology, solar and astro astrological symbolism. Uh, I kind of pick up where they left off and I, I put my own findings on that and kind of, you know, spruce it up, condense it and put that. So everybody gets, cause I, I wanted everybody to, you know, I wanted to kind of have a, um, um, a fully realized view of that particular perspective which is a valuable perspective when you look at our work and our symbols and our allegory, um, the astrological or astronomical and that sort of solar allegory is a valuable tool, a valuable lens. Uh, the, the next section was uh, classical mythology. So in class, in that section, I basically go through and, um, I isolate a lot of the components of uh, our ritual, our paraphernalia, you know, our regalia, and um, some of the stuff like uh, wisdom, strength, and beauty, the three principal supports. Uh, they correspond to wisdom would be the ionic column, which is sacred to Athena, and that's in Vitruvius. You know, it was used in houses of learning, like libraries and stuff, um, academies and things. Um, Strength would be the Doric order, and that's sacred to Mars or Aries, and uh, that's used in more militaristic settings, 
you know, because it den it denotes strength. And I think Vitruvius even said it's of the the of the body of a of a uh, um, a vigorous man or something like that. He said when he was describing the Doric column that it was very martial in its nature. Uh, and then lastly, beauty, uh, the the um, Corinthian column, sacred to Aphrodite or Venus, if Greek or Roman, um, and how be, due to the the acanthus sleeves and uh, that capital in particular, uh, Callimachus, I believe, is the one who first came up with that capital, and it is said that he found the the he designed the Corinthian capital after finding a votive basket for a young maiden, a beautiful young maiden who had just died. He saw her votive basket and it had been sitting there a while. So the acanthus leaves had grown through the basket and kind of pushed up against the rock that was on top of it. And, uh, due to the formation of the leaves, he thought it was very beautiful. And he went and he carved, the first, uh, the legend goes, he carved the first uh, Corinthian capital. So, mm -hmm. and there's other things with our, our jewels and our, you know, like the, I'm, I'm a lodge organist most of the time. Right now I'm a junior warden, but uh, for most of my Masonic career, I've been a lodge organist. And the jewel of the organist is the lyre. You ever see it? And, um, yes. you know, that has a direct mythological correspondence uh it was gifted to apollo from hermes so hermes created the lyre gave it to apollo uh because he had stolen some cattle from him uh hermes the thief in his trickster one of his trickster kind of thief uh forms had stolen some of apollo's cattle uh he was found guilty and he had to give up some in recompense. He gave up, uh, he created the liar for Apollo. Apollo, Apollo didn't really get into playing it. So it just kind of sat there and then he ended up giving it to Orpheus. And you know, the story of Orpheus going down into Hades and charming, uh, um, he was able to go into the underworld, whereas really only Hermes was able to psychopompically right. descend into the underworld. But, but Orpheus, due to the pleasing tones of his lyre, was able to um, descend into the underworld to fetch uh, Eurysides. His uh, music soothing the savage beast. Exactly. Exactly. So Cerebus or Cerebus, the three-headed dog, and uh, and Charon, the uh, the oarsman on the river Styx. He right. was able. He was able to uh, get past them. Oh, and, and lastly, the last section, because you said each section, right. uh, I did ceremonial magic, solar and astrological symbolism, classical mythology, oh, and then Mithraism. So Mithraism. Basically, basically, I go through all of Mithraism, uh, you know, from Kumat and a lot of the standard sources, and uh, I compile, you know, the basic story of what went on, how it was, uh, Mithras was, uh, you know, kind of a lesser known among the Zoroastrian pantheon of, of deities. Um, and that he was, um, he was taken on by the Roman legionaries around the turn of the common era. And he was the, the it was the per, preferred religion of the uh, Roman legionaries. And there's a lot of things in Mithraism that correspond to masonry now i should do a disclaimer here real quick is uh i'm not and and i'm not arguing this in the book nor am i arguing it now for an unbroken transmission of mithraism into freemasonry i don't believe that you know that it was you know that there's been a transmission that's made you know Mackey makes an argument for it um da costa makes an argument for it so if you believe them you know, they're, you know, they're pretty good Masonic authorities. They get a little fantastic, but so does Anderson and everybody else. Right. Um, but, uh, but what I do say is that there are a lot of similarities in um, Mithraism, such as they were called syndexioi, 
brothers of the grip um, because they shared a certain grip. There was a grade system. They had communal feasts. Um, there was a you you did a certain grip with the potter of the lodge. The potter is like the worshipful master. Um, yeah, there are. Th- I, I picked out several things that are very uh, similar in our degree work that happened in the Mithraic initiatory cycle. In the awesome. work, did you feel that there was specific ceremonial magic going on that you were like, well, this, this is something that it belongs somewhere else? In, in our degree work or in Mithraism? Ours. In our degree work, um, I wouldn't say that it's that it's baked in per se, you know. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily uh yeah, now here's what I would say. There is there is a hermetic magic about our work that I've found. And here's what I mean. The simplest example would be the celestial sphere and the terrestrial sphere. So you have um you have a relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm that that happens but that is you know sort of symbolized by those two spheres and i think that's what that's what uh sort of informs freemasonry along with the theurgical intercession you know um when we invoke this deity to intercede in our affairs and things that's that's classically sort of a theurgical operation, right? Uh, there's also, in that hermetic outlook, how about this? Here's a good way to explain it. Um, the difference between astrology and astronomy is that both of them measure and calculate and chronicle the movement of celestial bodies. But astrology comes with the accompanying hermetic belief that those movements have a microcosmic effect on man. Uh, chemistry and alchemy both measure and and sort of um, uh, measure and demarcate the transformation of elements, right? Um, but alchemy, as opposed to just straight up chemistry, comes with the accompanying hermetic belief that these these operations that happen in the retort or in the crucible or in the tincture, you know, um, have a corresponding hermetic effect on the microcosm man. Uh, and then the same, I would say with, with operative and speculative Freemasonry, um, both of them use the, the tools of stonemasonry. They use the, uh, the vernacular of stonemasonry. They use geometry and they use uh, the basic shell of the system. But Freemasonry comes with the, Freemasonry is hermetic in the sense that it comes with the accompanying belief that these operations with the working tools um, and this extra biblical uh, ritual that we do has an effect on the microcosm man and that um, all the all the astronomical things that we do such as circumambulation um, you know you can get into if you get into appendant bodies there's things like the royal arch and the four banners and you know we're constantly drawing down um, a hermetic resonance with you know vis-a-vis cosmic sympathies you know, so I make an argument for that, for that sort of operation magically. Awesome. So do you think, going back to the, uh, to the four, to the four lenses, do you think any particular one of those four plays a major role in masonry or do you think they all like work together as far as the relationship? I would think that they're pretty distinct and, um, what I did to kind of turn them all into one, you know, four chapters in one book was, like I said, uniting them via the uh, the thread of the Anna Lucas. So to get the perspective to unlock those four different interpretive vantage points, you'd have to reorient yourself to 
the uh, the Analucus, 4000 BCE, and from that temporal vantage point, certain things in our in our symbol sets and in our ritual are uh, unlocked differently than they are from, say, a Piscian processional uh, perspective or an or an Aryan processional perspective. You know what I mean? So, so there's the, without getting too much into it, there are precessional ages that are 2,160 years each. And that's when the sun occurs in one sign of the zodiac at the vernal equinox. It rises in one sign for 2,160 years. And there's been several of those. The commencement of the Taurian age would have been in the vicinity of 4000 BCE. So that's why I use that Taurian age perspective um, to look to look at those four subjects, which are united by that perspective. Look at the Tauroctony, you know, uh, look at, um, you know, the Tetramorph that we were briefly chatting about before the, we went live here. Um, you know, there's just a, a lot to bite off from that perspective. Going, going into the tetramorph, you know, in Christianity, it's, it's looked at as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, going back to the Sumerians, um, that was their celestial um, hierarchy. How do you feel all of that is connected? You know, I like that you brought up the Sumerians because uh, uh, they were the first ones... And and I'll get to how I think they're connected. Is um, they were the first ones to demarcate the 360 degrees of the circle. So they looked at the ecliptic, and because of an annual solar year, they figured to be in the vicinity of 360 days. That's where we get the 360 degree circle. So. So everything that we think of spatially and tem temporally, and this is, I think, super important, not only in Freemasonry, but in understanding Western, well, any civilization. So the Sumerians, as we know, are, you know, likely the first civilization that, in the historic period, let's say, um, the first civilization. And that means animal husbandry, agriculture, um, art expression and things like that, megalithic structures and things. So they demarcated that 360 degree circle because of an annual solar circuit, right? And, um, and in doing so, they created the, the means by which we communicate amongst each other anything spatially or temporally. So that's called the sexagesimal system. It's a base 60 system. That's based on that. That's where it comes from. So that means when we talk about the fourth part of a circle, that means when we talk about a square, when we talk about a plum, when we talk about a level, when we talk about 180 degrees, when we talk about 90, 45, whatever degrees. Um, so our spatial orientation, X, Y, and Z coordinates in the Cartesian system, we are always talking about we quantify that, that spatial stuff by that 360-degree circle. That's where those degrees come from. And, and similarly, when we're talking about time, anything temporal, when we're talking about 72, uh, 72 days, when we're talking about 30 days, when we're talking about 60 seconds, when we're talking about 365 days or uh, 12 months or, or you know, an hour or 24 hours, we're always talking about something that comes from that sexagesimal system, the base 60, 360 degree circle, that system that the Sumerians had 6,000 years ago. And it's important that they had it 6,000 years ago because 6,000 years ago was 4,000 BCE. So I make that point in the book as well. You know, that, that, um, that, that circle and the Sumerians and I'm getting back into the tetramorph. I'm sorry, I kind of spun out in this thing. <laughs> yeah, this is a good basis for it. So yeah, so so that circle is of immense importance for everything spatial and everything temporal that we know, because everything else is decimal, right? Everything else is ten, base ten. 
You know, when we're talking about integers, how many apples do you have in your basket, Susie? We're talking about seven, three, whatever. Who knows? I mean, we're talking about integers, and, and we kind of get that idea because of our hands, right? Base 10. Uh, but, again, when we're talking about space and time, we're always talking about the Sumerians and their 360-degree circle. That's where that comes from. So in their dividing of that circle, um, and I think that's, that's like million-dollar information as culturally as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? That digesting the gravity of that is, uh, was massive for me, thinking, oh, my God, all right, these guys had this 6,000 years ago, and we haven't improved on it really an iota since then. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So anyway, yeah, and they had, uh, I don't know if it was the Sumerians, it might have been the Akkadians or the Assyrians. It was one of the, because it goes Sumerians, Akkadians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Neo-Babylonians, then the Persians in that area, Mesopotamia, the, the land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So um, one of those cultures, and early one, probably the Akkadians came up with what were called the Lamassu. And the Lamassu, in case you haven't heard, were, um, were sphinxes. And these sphinxes had, uh, they guarded the, they were one on either side of the portals of the ziggurats. And their ziggurats, you know, some of them, such as the one at Borsippa, had seven levels, seven levels that were definitely planetary. Like, no doubt about it. They, they even colored them as such, and they, put their, they, they attributed them to their planetary gods. Um, so it was the seven visible planets on the ziggurat, and the, the doorways to their ziggurats were generally um, guarded by the Lamassu. And these Lamassu were sphinxes that consisted of, the, consisted of the wings of an eagle, the head of a man, the body of a lion, and the legs of a bull. And sometimes you you transpose those last two, the body of a bull and the legs or feet of a lion. But it was always those four um, fixed signs, what we say astrologically, you would say the fixed signs of the zodiac. Uh, the, that would be um, Taurus in the vernal equinox, Leo at the summer solstice, um, Scorpio, anciently conflated with the eagle because of Aquila, probably. That's, most people think that's why. Aquila is a constellation in the vicinity. Um, and, uh, and then down to Aquarius, the man, at the winter solstice. So, um, so that's where we get the first appearance, uh, on record at least, of the tetramorph, or the four living creatures, is... Uh, from the from the Mesopotamian cultures, and then of course, you know you see it you see it later um, in various forms, various permutations. In the in the tetramorph, you're seeing that morph from going from Samaria, Syria to Egypt, and then into Christianity. Uh, when when it gets to Christianity, it's completely changed into something something else. Do you have any idea as to why Christianity adopted the Tetramorph? I think because it was in some of the uh, some of the books. It's in Ezekiel. I'm not sure. I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm only taking shots in the dark in terms of w which books preceded other books. But uh, I would say that. Uh, we know that Ezekiel's vision, he encounters the tetramorph for the four, and then in John of Patmos, of course, so that's New Testament, John, Revelation, John of Patmos. Uh, so we, that would be around the turn of the common era. And the, uh, I think, e, didn't Enoch encounter a tetramorph as well? I believe so. Uh, yeah. So... Um, well, four is also a very important number Kabbalistically as well. I mean, four represents the physical plane. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah, and we've seen you know four with uh, with um, Hesed, the Sephira Hesed, uh, Jupiter, and also Kabbalistically four for Daleth, the door, 
and and the physical plane because uh like in tarot daleth is associated with the empress and and through that we get all that um fertility and fecundity of and that material kind of pleasure that goes along with that uh venerian archetype and the number four rests on that kabbalistically as well because of daleth and that door to door to the material uh world yeah exactly do you feel that there's any there's symbolism that has been overlooked in the craft uh, where you're looking at one thing and you're saying, hey, you know what, that's not that. Why, why are we passing it off as that? Symbolism that's been over. Um, I think that one, uh, one that's pretty obvious, uh, we talk about the, um, the point within a circle. You know, it comes up a lot. And I think everybody, I think it's pretty clear that it is, uh, that the two lines are solstitial, right? Because you've got St. John the Baptist for the uh, summer solstice. You got St. John the Evangelist for the winter solstice. Um, there's, there's been an argument made though that, oh, they couldn't be solstitial because otherwise they would be like this. But that's from the perspective, you know, they would be like this. They would, just like they are on a globe. When you're looking at a globe, you get the two tropics with the equator in between them. And sometimes you'll see that sine wave. That's the path of the sun, you know, going from, going from the, the vernal equinox up to the summer solstice and then down to the winter solstice and then back up to the vernal equinox. But, um, I don't know. I see a lot in the point within a circle. There's diagram. There's Th- there's Thales theorem is in there. You ever work on Thales theorem, which is uh, how you will always create a right angle when if you if you bisect the point in that circle. You know, you just draw a line anywhere straight across, um, and that's points uh, A and B. Let's say at the at the on the perimeter of that circle. Uh, and you've got a line that goes through the point in the center. Any other point that is not A or B, um, any point C on the on the uh, di- perimeter of that circle will form a right angle, a 90-degree angle, uh, in relationship to A and B. So a, point C will always be a right angle to A and B, wherever you put it on there. And that's uh, Thales' theorem. Um, oh, I was going to finish the thing about the, uh, the solstitial, uh, point within a circle. So yeah, I've heard people argue they would be horizontal if they were, um, because they would be lines of latitude if they, they would be the tropics. Right. And the argument is no, because they put the volume of sacred law in the East. So the orientation, look at even the word orientation. To orient oneself is to face east, the orient, right? So um, they put the Bible or the volume of sacred law at the top as if to denote that's the east. So instead of our north-centric normal orientation in modern cartography, right, when you're looking at any map or any chart or anything, you're always thinking north is going to be up here, right? Because that's just the way we're brought up to think about it. Uh, I would, and I'm pretty sure in the ancient world that was not the case. The east was the uh, orient. That's where you oriented yourself. So well, that's well, that's what. I've also heard um, Robert Lomas and Christopher Knight wrote a book, and their argument for those for those pillars is that the reason why they're solstitial is because those are the equal days. And if you're trying to set a calendrical system to know what day of the year it is, those two points in the, you know, even if you use those two staffs as equal points from distance from each other in the ground facing upward, then you're going to be able to build a circle around that 
to be able to create a calendar to know what's happening. And their argument was that that came from the time after the, the great flood when people didn't know what day, what, whatever, and if they had to be able to develop culture again and do husbandry and, and you know, grow crops and all that kind of stuff. That's their argument for it, which is interesting. I like that argument, and I, I write a little bit about that in Myth, Magic, and Masonry, about the gnomons, they're called. So an, you would raise a gnomon or two gnomons. Uh, you know, here's, here's a place where you see them. We were at Karnak. We went to Egypt a few years ago, three, four years ago. And Karnak Temple, they're, only one of the obelisks is still there. But a lot of those temples would have had two obelisks right before the pylons, right? Two non-load-bearing pillars, two non-load-bearing obelisks. And the obelisks have a point on them. So they're a perfect, what you call gnomon, which would be the point of a sundial. Because when you see that, uh, it, the gnomon is that, that erect part of, of a sundial. Um, and and obelisks are particularly good at that because they they're pointed at the top and they they trace their shadow very uh, accurately, you know, because of that point. Um, so they would erect these two non-load bearing um, gnomons, and at the winter solstice, one casts a shadow um, this far uh, north, right? And at the summer solstice, it casts a shadow this far south. And the point at which they cross, you can deduce um, true north, you know, because you're getting the point at which they cross. And then once you, once you were able to get true north, then you called in the, I wish I could remember their name. They were called the Harpatanate Har, Har, or something like that. Harpatane. They were the rope stretchers. Um, in in Egyptian society, so these rope structures demarcated the land. They used geometry, and they used specifically the Pythagorean theorem to demarcate the land and to square off uh, things. So after after you had gotten that solstitial point and were able to find true north, you would call in the rope stretchers who had their ropes with with uh, some Pythagorean triplet, whether it was three foot whether it was three, four, five, or, you know, um, 16, 9, 16, 25, or whatever Pythagorean triplet they used in knots, they would take your point and then square your temple. So, so if, you, if you put a stake in the ground right at that point, you can, you can lay out your, um, your, your base, your vertical, and your uh, hypotenuse, and that will give you a right angle. So once once you got true north, that's how you got your right angle, and then you can continue making the structure. So I like I think I've read that also before uh, that Robert Lomax uh, was is it Lomax or Lomas? Lomas. Uh, Lomas. Christopher Lomas. Knight and Robert Lomas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uriel's th- Machine. That's a good book. Really good book. I've read. Uh, the Hiram Key, they did Hiram Key, right? Yeah, that was good as well. No. Yeah, I, that's the one I read. But um, I, had a, I have a question from James. Uh, James wanted to ask, what Masonic traditions or Masonic workings are directly connected to magic? What Masonic traditions as in uh, what um, pre and post, like what uh, appendant bodies and tributaries and distributaries from masonry what he's saying is uh i think what he's saying is 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 there is there anything that you find in our ritual or or doing related to any magic mystery school maybe starting with the fact that we use the word ritual (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well there's there's certain there's certainly that there's uh fumigation some some lodges particularly of the uh of the um observant variety uh will sometimes have a thurber we have one at my observant lodge here a lodge we chartered a couple of years ago uh we have a thurber 
who essentially does a banishing ritual and fumigates the space before we uh, open. Uh-huh. So uh, there's also tiling as a form of, of banishing as well. It's very, uh, um, yeah, that could be considered very Kabbalistic in terms of a flaming sword and the everything that that uh, right. kind of denotes. Um, there's, of course, the Solomonic ideas of, uh, you know, because there's a very rich history of uh, Solomon, King Solomon as a magician uh, and in the grimoire tradition. You know, you've got the Testament of Solomon. You've got the greater and lesser keys of Solomon. Uh, so there's there's certainly a lot of, you know, King Solomon was no stranger to magic, and that's even, that's scriptural. You know, that's documented stuff. There's also... Uh, in the Arabian Nights, um, there there are stories of Suleiman. He's called Suleiman in that, uh, commanding seventy-two jinn, uh, just as there are in the uh, in the Quran as well. In fact, there's a great story of about. Uh, um, oh no, that is in the it's the jinn and the fishermen in the uh, Arabian Nights. But, uh, I mean, the whole bit with the brass, the brass uh, pot and the, the pantacles and the, the, you know, essentially the whole, uh, the seals of Solomon and In your everything. book, you talk about the seals, right? You talk about the goetic, um, goetic demons and uh, in, in relation to what your book is talking about and can you get into that a bit? I talk a little bit. I talk a little bit about the Shem Halmeferash, which are the seventy-two uh, jinn. Yeah. So uh, again, now I'm going to go back again because we're talking about that three hundred and sixty-degree circle, and we're talking about the Analucas again because seventy-two. Um, if if you divide that circle, so the Egyptians made an innovation on that Sumerian 360-degree circle, and that was coming up with what they called the decans. So if you look at the Dendera zodiac, you'll see that there are 36 decans on there around the perimeter of the Dendera zodiac. These 36 decans were essentially, um, they were two things in Egypt. They were foretelling time, because on the eastern horizon, the various decans would come up, and uh, they were each a um, uh, 10 degrees of that 360-degree circle. So they could tell time by that, diurnally, right? It, diurnally and annually. Um, but uh, so, so the 72 jinn and the Shem HaMeferash, the Goetic demons, are what you call the quinenses. So you've got the decans, right, which are, as the name sounds, they're 10-degree segments of, there's 36 of them, and they're 10-degree arc segments of that 360-degree circle. Right. The quinances are half of that. There's, there's two, two quinances per decan, and they're five-degree arc segments of that, and there happens to be 72 of those. And those 72 uh, quinances correspond to the Shem HaMeferash. And they're each associated with a certain vice or a certain virtue. And um, there's, a, there's a certain sigil associated with each one. And they can be invoked. They can be banished. They can be used for uh, various operations per the uh, Ars Goetia, which is one of the books in the uh, Claviculi Solomonis. And um, and it's funny how a lot of this stuff has an astrological kind of base. I mean, and look at all those grimoires, particularly the Arabic ones like the Picatrix. Uh, it's all astrology. At its base, it's, it's all astrology. And, um, and that Egyptian idea, which was another thing I was going to say about these uh, decans, right, that the Egyptians came up with, their innovation on the Sumerian cosmological model is that uh, they 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 ensouled or inspirited their statuary by isolating that astral, by concentrating and isolating the, that astral influence. 
So they believed in bringing down cosmic sympathies in a hermetic way. Hermes Trismegistus, the, an Egyptian, right? Uh, Ptolemaic Egyptian, but or Hellenistic Egyptian, but Egyptian nonetheless. And that was the idea that was very Egyptian about that um, that sort of Hellenistic period as well, is that they could concentrate, focus, and bring down those celestial or particularly astral um, influences into their statuary. And they did this by means of astral magic, which feeds into the, the grimoire tradition and feeds into the Solomonic literature and feeds in via Hermeticism into Freemason. Interesting. Um, was there anything that you felt you had to leave out of your book or maybe there wasn't enough room? Is it something that you wanted to talk about later? Um, or is that, was the, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, there were some things that really came up after the fact, you know, where, where after it was done and I sent off the manuscript, I was like, well, you know, there, there's never a stopping point. Right. You, you know, I mean, the stopping point is when you send it off to the publisher, you know, right. and, and when they're done with their, with their editing, because I could have gone in and kept hitting up that manuscript and changed stuff every time I went in. And it, same thing with the last book I wrote, I have another one coming out June 24th this summer. And uh, it's it's going to be about 400 pages. I mean, it's a it's a almost 140,000 words. So that's a lot, right? It's going to be a fat book. And uh, that's another one where every time I would hit up that manuscript, I can go in there and I could change stuff every single time I go in, walk away and say that's perfect. But then I'll go in a day later, five days later, a week later, and I'll yeah. <laughs> well. What's this new book about, if you don't mind talking about it? Yeah. So the new book is, uh, is called Approaching the Middle Chamber. And then the subtitle is The Seven Liberal Arts in Freemasonry and the Western Esoteric Tradition. Hmm. So just like what it says, um, I use the, the fellow craft lecture as a model, as sort of the template for the layout of the book. And... I have an introduction. Uh, Pierce Vaughn did the foreword to it. There's an introduction, and then um, and then it goes all the way through that lecture as the sort of skeleton of the work from the porch of the temple all the way through to the middle chamber and hitting every single thing in that lecture and ex and expounding on that from the perspective of Western esotericism. Hmm. So I get into the you know, um, I get into the pillars very deeply and, and talk about a lot of this stuff we've been talking about. Uh, I get into uh, the three principal officers, the three principal supports of the lodge. I get, there's a great section. I get into the uh, empirical senses, the five senses and what these mean in an esoteric uh, context, what they mean classically in, occult, in various occult contexts. And, and then I get into the meat of the book is, of course, the, the, uh, the trivium and the quadrivium, which I minutely dissect, you know, and then really feed in. So it's, so it's not going to be like that, you know, that book, the trivium that everybody has, that little hard brown, or it's, no, the quadrivium, sorry, that, that little hard brown book that you've seen. Anyway, there's a popular book called the quadrivium. I forget what. Is it Taskin who put it out? I forget who put it out. But uh, it's more of a general kind of thing for, you know, your layperson. I keep, I keep my work very, uh, you know, very much in the Western esoteric uh, kind of perspective. Because, of course, if you're getting into the trivium and the quadrivium, you can approach that from so many different cultural angles and so many different, you know, kind of flavors of that, just looking at the material that you have to kind of pick your, your audience, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you said you've been a Mason for over 10 years. Have you seen a shift in Masonry and what do you think's in store for the future of Masonry, especially esoterically speaking? 
So I have seen that because I, I came up in a very solid Blue Lodge back east uh, in Norwalk, Connecticut, Old Well St. John's number six. And it was a very old lodge, chartered 17, uh, 1765. So older than the United States of America. Yeah. And um, a very old established lodge who did very solid work, great memory work. I, was, uh, I had to meet full performance full proficiency, um, you know, it was, uh, but I wouldn't call it an esoteric lodge other than not in the way that we we tend to talk about that today, the way we tend to use that term today. Of course, because it's Masonic, there's some inherent esotericism there because all you got to do is look in the dictionary at the word esoteric and you know that that fits masonry, whether we're talking about Eliphas Levy or, or Albert Pike or not. You know, if we're talking about Preston and Anderson, you're still saying it's esoteric because it's esoteric. You know, it's for the initiated. It's for the, you know, um, which, you know, precluding the profane means that your thing is esoteric. So uh, anyway, so, um, yes, I have seen a change over this amount of time. And that change has been that uh, um, more people are willing to talk about esoterica uh more people are i guess knowledgeable about it or have have you know and i'm not sure how much of this comes with the internet as well you know that the internet has played a role in us being uh um having access to this sort and you know if you're on facebook you know that there are a bazillion or at least several uh uh esoteric mason groups you know so you know, I'm not sure what's causing the change, but I will say this. There is a little bit of a pushback, and I'm glad that there is. There should always be – we should always keep it on the rails, you know, that we should always balance that sort of um, – those two poles and not let it get too, I guess, speculative or too way out there. We need to uh, be responsible in our research. I think that's a big point that's coming up is like uh, – we need to cite credible sources. We need to we need to be careful about um, about uh, uh, promoting uh, how what's the way to say it. We need to be we need to be responsible with the material, and we need to be careful about passing on an intact edifice. And we need to be mindful that we're not uh, um, contributing to the cycle of bad information yeah disinformation yeah right there's a lot of misinformation out there and that's one of the reasons why we decided to create this group is because there there is a lot of misinformation there is a lot of false uh you know and and just bs out there that's talking about what we actually do when it's really not that yeah Uh, so it's good to have folks like yourself write books and correlate the two and really talk about why how, when, where, and then you, you're able to go back into history and cite things. And now it's, now we have credibility and we're able to point at things and say, okay, this is where this came from. And this is why. And I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm honored to have brothers like you in the craft with me because you know, your folks that I had learned from, you know, those, those, these are, th- these are people that I, I learned from. So th- yeah. a big thank you. And, <laughs> and yeah. I, I look forward to the rest of your work. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, this has been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's, I'm always down to talk about my work. And, um, and, oh, and when, hopefully when things get back to normal, I'd love to come and visit. I know that, uh, I know that I was talking to Joseph Newman about uh, coming out to Pedro a couple years ago, you know, yeah. uh, right around the time I came out to South Pasadena last time. Oh, did it? I don't know if I ever saw you guys out there. I was I lived out there a couple of years and used to go to I, that was my affiliate lodge, South Pasadena. So we probably ran into each other. Yeah. I was I was out there with Dago and Marco and Julio and all those guys. Good guys. Um, good guys. Yeah. They've done a lot of work and have paved the paved a good path for folks to go down. You know, to talk about um, subjects like this. Yeah. 
And, uh, oh yeah, their illumination series and things like that. That's excellent. Yeah. And Fauché, Fauché, Culver City. They're they're yeah. uh, Merrick and those cats. Yeah. Really great brothers, and it's uh, you know, you got a lot of good Freemasonry there in Los Angeles and thereabouts. So we started our own series called the Mystic Lantern Lecture Series, wow. and now you know we we also do Esotericon. So we hope to have you at both, if possible. And the near yeah. future, when things cool down, and you know we're we're able to talk to each other face to face, yeah, we would love to have you for both. That would be great. Please, um, you know, hit me up anytime, and uh, my information uh, is it's in the back of the, my book. So. Where can people buy your book? How about that? Where can people buy your book? Yeah. Where can people get a hold of you? There's there's the information. It's there's that old picture of me, <laughs> but uh, but the information's on the last page where you can that's my email and everything. But uh, you can buy the book at the best place to buy it is at thelaudiblepursuit.com. That's the publisher okay. because because that way Jeff Bezos doesn't take a bite out of it. But uh, you can always go to Amazon and buy it as well. If you got Amazon Prime and you just want to get it that way, you can do that too. Um, Audible Pursuit is the preferred method, and we'll make sure that we put that up there for you. Uh, I'll have Jim, we'll, we'll see if Joe can make that happen. So that cool. our viewers yeah. can go ahead and purchase your book and support you. Yeah. Well, I want to come out, so let me and know about remind it. Us, remind us one more time what the name of your uh, new book is and when it's coming out. It's coming out June, it's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. And it's called the Approaching the Middle Chamber: The Seven Liberal Arts in Freemasonry and the Western Esoteric Tradition. Let me tell you something magical, though, about it. Okay. Um, so Wednesday, I'm I'm big on drawing down planetary influences. If you're friends friends with me on Facebook, you probably know that because every day I do a planetary based kind of post. You know where I'll do the tarot. I'm a huge like astrology nut too so i'll do the tarot and the astrology for that corresponding to that day and i'll bring in classical mythological elements and stuff like that because i believe in what's called uh Ficino called them chains sometimes they're called uh synthamata and these are signatures you know they're they're basically planetary zodiacal elemental astrological signatures that we use in magic and we bring these down so it's just like the metals correspond to certain days of the week and it's that idea right this hermetic corresponding idea anyway so if you look at the date of my my book release it's uh wednesday june 24th so there's two things wednesday is wednas say you know which is the germanic um subsumation or synchronization of hermes mercury so i wanted that hermetic element right so i so i wanted it to be a wednesday and then june 24th as you probably know is uh saint john the baptist day. Yeah. yeah in the vicinity of the solstice and yeah. right smack on saint john the baptist day so one of the saints john and uh so I definitely wanted to, I, I'm a firm believer in capitalizing on those cosmic sympathies that we've been talking about. Manifesting energy right there, brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so pretty awesome. much Google Jamie Paul Lamb and you're going to find how to, how to give this book. We'll, we'll put it up there so that way we, we, we have all the information for you. I want to say thank you very much, Jamie. Um, I want to say thank you to, my production team, I know we're doing this a little unorthodox, but hey, it's working, so it is what it is. And everybody that's watching, thank you very much for supporting. Stay safe. Uh, yep. Thank you. And do you have anything else you want to add, Jamie? You know, just again, thanks, brethren, for having me out. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And I hope to see you soon. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. And, uh, well, you know, let's get things back on the rails once we, once everything, once the coast is clear and, and start doing some more uh, conferences and uh, esoteric cons and stuff like that. Definitely. Definitely. We look forward to having you. Okay. So that's all we have, folks. Thank you for tuning in.